0: Hello, and welcome to the Whole Equestrian Podcast, where we're bridging the gap between riding and wellness, discussing topics related to mindset, fitness, nutrition, and community. Our mission is to promote health and happiness through our love of horses. I am Dr. Tyler Held, a certified mental performance consultant with my doctorate in sport and performance psychology. I am a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, a gym owner, and also a semi-retired five-star groom, still loving the horses and the horse industry through my sport and performance psychology practice, um, and, and getting in the saddle whenever I can. So. This week, I am very excited to bring you Scott McGregor. And if you listened to our last episode with Dr. Pamela Reband, you know Scott's name from her conversation or maybe even picking up her book, Three Steps Up to Mediocrity on Amazon. Um, Scott had a really interesting perspective on how to be good trainer for someone that's going through fear going through anxiety Um, and I really love talking to him so Uh, just had like a fun little conversation on how he helped Pam, how he's helped others in the past, and uh, how to instill confidence without pushing someone too hard as a trainer. Uh, I think this is a really revealing conversation if you have struggled with fear and anxiety and have maybe had a negative trainer or an inappropriate horse, or if you happen to be someone that trains other people. Uh, A lot to take away from this conversation, so I will go ahead and take it to the recording. All right, Scott, so can you uh, start off by just telling me a little bit about yourself, uh, background in the horse industry, how you got into horses, and what discipline you do?
1: All right, well, my name's obviously Scott McGregor, and I grew up out west in Pasadena, California where my mother was a professional horse trainer. I grew up as a horse trainer's son and obviously chose that route myself. Um, I went to school under the horse science, degree up at Western Kentucky, and then started training horses in 1986. My first discipline is training gaited horses, um, specifically Tennessee walking horses for the show ring. using flat-shod horses in the divisions appropriate, and then in uh, 2006, I began showing gated dressage horses, um, both in traditional and then in, in western dressage, as that sport took off in the mm-hmm. early 2000s. Very cool. Yeah. i yeah. remember that you asked me. <laughs>
0: Uh, the yeah, no, that's perfect. The Western dressage is actually something that, like, uh, so I come from the eventing world. So uh, dressage is obviously part of eventing. And Western dressage has always been something that's kind of intrigued me, uh, not knowing a lot about the Western world. Uh, is there anything that drew you to that discipline specifically?
1: Well, I gotten interested in, in using gator horses and traditional dressage that was a part of our versatility program within the Tennessee Walking Horse Breed, offered by TWHBEA as our breed headquarters. Um, so as I was involved in that, and the Western dressage began to emerge, I had friends that kept asking me, you know, why I wasn't participating and in, uh, inviting me to participate, and I kind of ignored them for the first five years of the organization's uh, startup, and then tried it out one day, uh, mostly because I found a saddle I liked, of all weird things, to get you started in a sport, Yep. and uh, my horse liked it. He, he liked the test, so I that first year, I really got involved and started, you know, involving myself with the test with multiple horses that were in training with me, and uh, went to the World Championships either, I guess, the following year which I think might've been 2017, 2018. I'm not hundred percent sure that uh, things just took off like crazy from there. I began teaching um, that sport and obviously uh, accumulated a lot of wins at the world championships. So it really worked out as a life changing experience for me.
0: Very cool. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, I love like getting into new things and new disciplines and it's funny uh uh I've had like this tickle to get in a western saddle so maybe I'll be able to to join the western dressage community here in the future but uh yeah really really cool to kind of just hear about that and hear about yourself and then um I know you've kind of sort of gotten into some endurance riding through Pam correct so Pam was actually on we I had her on the podcast. Um, I told the listeners about her book. So uh, some of the people that are going to listen to this have actually read the book and heard a lot about you. But um, for those that haven't, sort of listened to the last episode or listened to the book, can you tell me a little bit about how you got connected with Pam and then started endurance riding with her? The
1: um, thing, so back in. 1998, a a breed, Tennessee Walking Horse Breed organization was formed called National Walking Horse Association. And Pam and I both served on the board of directors at the same time and uh, had some nice conversations, really enjoyed her. So uh, subsequently she moved out to Arizona and I didn't see her for the next 20 years, I guess. And uh, when she moved back to Murphy Tennessee where I live also um, she contacted me with a project which was to get a horse ready for her to ride um, doing the sport of endurance and uh, I took on the job mostly because I just really I I liked her you know from our meetings in the past and I'm like yeah I can do it you know I didn't realize what I was getting myself into another life changing event and uh, so that culminated with a year of of training and her getting back into the sport of endurance and then her inviting me to participate in the sport of endurance. Um, She bought one of my really nice horses, which is the horse I rode last Saturday, completing my first 50 mile endurance ride. Um, His name is Max, or I'm supercharged, and uh, her horse's name is Shiloh, who is the horse that I originally trained which is in the book.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no. Very cool. Very cool. Um, So with that, I know, you know, Pam kind of when we talked, she said that you didn't really want to be known for this uh, sort of process of bringing confidence back to riders. And the way that she sort of portrays you in the book is almost to me like a little bit of a mental performance coach, so that's what I do. I'm I'm a certified mental performance consultant, and I work with. Uh a lot of riders, not just on getting through fear, but there is a lot of similar, you know, someone's had a bad accident, they've gotten a little afraid, and they're just trying to enjoy the sport again. And it seems like, you know, just reading the book, hearing her talk, um, and hearing everything about you, you sort of took on this role, not only as a horse trainer, but also as that sort of guide on the side to help Pam feel more comfortable in the saddle and just like you knew when to push her, when to not push and and sort of just instill this confidence back into her to go from, it's been three years since I've ridden and I don't want to get on. I'm puking at the mounting block to going and doing those 50 mile rides and and back in the endurance and I think she's she's trying to gear up for one of the biggest endurance rides in the country is my understanding so um can you tell me a little bit about like that process and how you knew you needed to serve that role as sort of, you know, an encourager as well cuz I feel like a lot of what I encounter in the equestrian industry is that trainers are part of the problem, right? They'll be like, "Oh, like you shouldn't be scared, fake it till you make it." And there's a lot of really bad advice when it comes to dealing with fear that's coming from the trainer side, so I'm like really curious to pick your brain about this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the story goes back to when I first started training. I I um uh was presented with a nine-year-old with a broken arm and the pony that did it. And through a process of, of uh, getting that young lady back into training uh, and riding properly over the next five years, it kind of taught me a system that works in, in rehabilitating a person's confidence. And she later became one of the West Coast's best trainers of the Tennessee Walking Horses. And actually took over my business when I left. Wow! And is still still training to this day. When I got to Tennessee, um, those opportunities really didn't come around until about a year prior to when Pam moved here. I had a really nice lady that was boarding at the facility I'm currently training out of, that I helped through the same process get her confidence back. Um, you know, she's gone on to have a wonderful relationship with her horse. So being that that was, you know, a year or less prior to when Pam hired me, I was very much in that mental state of how to get a person to challenge their fear without overwhelming them. And uh, so it just, it was a lucky set of circumstances that, you know, I, I was just there doing that a year prior to her with another lady that I really enjoyed working with. And then Pam obviously and might become extre- <clears throat> excuse me, extremely good friends. Uh, through the process of the last two years and kind of go back to what you were asking about know when to push and when to encourage um that's that's the hardest part of rehabilitating a person out of fear is that they have to completely and totally trust you they have to essentially give you control of their actions completely. That has to be earned. It has to be earned over a fairly long period of time. First, you have to get the horse safe. So that's the trainer part. Um, Once you believe the horse is safe, you then very slowly integrate the rider back into situations where their confidence is built up. Um, Pam and I rode horses side by side uh, during some of that, so that I was basically talking to her through the whole situation right next to her on what to do, you know, just watching her body language, watching the horse's body language, make sure the horse was okay um, with her her not being 100%, and, uh, you know, you just, you find situations that are uncomfortable. I like, can remember one of the early situations we uh, rode rode with a group, including the lady that, that uh, was prior to her um, through the woods and came to a, a area where we had to step down onto a lake shore that was very muddy. And uh, I basically encouraged her to do that, and she just did it. She, she sucked it up and trusted the horse. That's, that's one big thing you have to trust the horse which means the horse has to be trustworthy so she did it and then we you know rode down the lakeshore for just a second and hop back up on the trail that went back to the direction we were traveling well I looked at her at that point in time and I said I said you've just accomplished something that you know you were extremely afraid of and you're okay the horse is okay you 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 did your job. You told the horse what to do. You rode, you know, with enough confidence that he believed in your leadership. And now that it's over, you know that you're able to do at least that much. And as time progressed and the rides progressed, uh, we ended up going down this rocky pathway in a big South Fork, which is a big riding area in a park in Tennessee. This huge rock trail that we had to step down essentially ladders of rock. It, it really was even uncomfortable for me to watch her do it, but beings that she had now built up a rapport with her horse, she was ready to do something like that. And when she cut down to the bottom and said, turn around and look up, I said, that's what you just did. So it's moments like that, that instill confidence. And as their coach, you constantly watch their body language. You watch the horse's body language. You, you push when push is needed. You praise all the time with anything that's successful. Um, you tell them to praise the horse all the time that anything's successful. And, and slowly that relationship builds to the point where the confidence just slowly returns because of successes. Now on the hard part of that, and you had alluded to this earlier, that I don't want to be known as that being my specialty. For one year, I had to make no mistakes. Anything that was a mistake would have stopped the process of confidence building, and I would have lost months of, of time um, trying to you know come back out of any kind of mistake like that. So it's a tremendous stress on the coach in that you have to be so confident in in what the rider's actually capable of as well as what the horse is actually capable of and the horse's ability to work with the rider that isn't confident. In other words, he's listening not only to her cues, but he's also listening to me and he's taking confidence. The horse is taking confidence from me because I had a, a long duration of time to build that relationship between myself and the horse. So the horse, And find confidence in somebody that was very confident on him, even though the person on him might still have confidence issues. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's when I was talking to Pam, the one thing I asked her, I was like, wow, like you, you bought this horse, you know, without sitting on it while you were afraid to ride. Did you ever think, I made a mistake. And I think in my practice too, I work with a lot of people who are battling confidence, fear, anxiety, and then they're on a five-year-old untrained thoroughbred. And, And to me, that's really, really difficult to try to help someone get over their own fear when the horse isn't stable and confident in its own job and its own self. Have you ever run into Uh, a situation where you were helping someone try to regain confidence and you were like, Ooh, this just like, isn't the horse for you. This isn't the horse that we should be doing this on.
1: Yeah. In all reality, that's probably more likely than the horse is the right horse. Um, I was like you with the two ladies I've mentioned that they had the right horse. When you have the wrong horse, the only choice is to take the horse yourself and train it for many months yourself while you are using another horse to rebuild their confidence maybe a horse that you own maybe a horse that is uh, that you have permission to use for that purpose that's owned by somebody else you can't you can't put two beings that are afraid of each other uh, together and expect results you have to find one of those beings <laughs> that has enough confidence to ignore the uh the false cues of fear um so the horse has to be right one it has to be able to really listen to to you the instructor as well as the rider and, and that's that's a tough horse to find it's not that common Pam just got lucky she bought the right horse so even even though she was probably afraid to the point of being sick like it said in the book um, he really was the right horse and has since proven himself many times over as being just an unbelievably willing animal to to compensate for anything that might go wrong through his own courage
0: yeah no and that and that really shined through in in some of the stories that she told and i really also liked um you know there was kind of a turning point when she said like You know, I was riding and Shiloh spooked at something and I wasn't even sure what, but like I sat on through the side scoot and stuff like that. And I feel like the misconception in building back confidence is that we're building back to a perfect ideal world where like we're just going to feel safe and comfortable and, and perfect all the time, whereas horses are so unpredictable and even on the safest horse shit's just going to happen. Like it, it's just going to go wrong and horses spook and shudder. And to me, confidence is not just thinking everything's going to be great, but knowing that you can handle whatever's thrown your way. And and I think like, you know, as you've sort of reinforced that trust in the horse, uh, really solidifies that, right? Like if I trust the horse, even if they do a side scoot or for some reason have a bad day and and do something a little bit naughty, I know that I can trust myself to deal with it. And I know I can trust, you know, the horse to not take it too far as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's actually part of the healing process. You, you don't want the horse to be perfect. You don't want a daisy clipper that, you know, is, is, so old that they don't have any life in them. You don't want, you know, a young horse that's uh, having a good time in spite of the Do <laughs> You do want a horse to make mistakes. Um, like you said, their horse is going to trip. Horse is going to shy once in a while. The hard part of the, as the instructor is that as these minimal mistakes occur, you're coaching them through it. You're, you're pointing out what they did right. You're pointing out that, that it's okay that things aren't perfect. I remember the first trip that Shiloh made, you know, uh, Pam turned white. I mean, it, it, it instigated a very bad reaction because obviously that's how she got hurt, um, described in the book as a, as a forward fall. So it's okay that the mistakes happen. What's important is that you're able to coach through mistake. Loosen your knees. Relax your back. Take a deep breath. You're okay. You're on. The horse is okay. He's didn't find the situation overwhelming, you know, because the human's going to react, right? But we tend to clutch when we, when uh, we react to fear and, uh, you have to coach them out of the clutch because clutch to a horse means go faster in many cases. And, uh, so that's that's your job. You just, you watch everything. I, for a year, I never took my eyes off her. I might be riding next to her, but, you know, everything was coached through. Every step was watched. Every good situation was rewarded. Um, so that's, that's the process. So you can tell that'd be very hard. It, it's very taxing mentally on the instructor.
0: Yeah, no. And I, I think that brings up a, a good point question to kind of follow up on the, you know, Pam constantly said, she's like, I don't know why Scott did this for me. I don't know why he took the time, uh, to, to drive out across town and, uh, you know, do this for probably less money than he was worth and everything like that. Uh, what was like your, why, why were you drawn to continue to help her through the situation?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's the best question in the world because it's not my profession. That's not what I focus on on a daily basis. I liked her. Yeah. All the people that I've helped through the process with, I, I just liked them. I knew that they needed me and there probably weren't, you know, other choices to uh, get through. And having known Pam for many, many years, um, you know, I, I had seen her in the show ring. I mean, she had winning horses when when I was a young trainer. So she was a person that I grew up knowing I liked her. I wanted to help her. And sometimes it's not about the money. Don't want a big long line of situations like that, obviously coming along, but it was the right thing to do. And, you know, I, I am super glad I did it because as we've alluded to a tremendous friendship blossomed out of that relationship and, uh, You know, it's it's a neat friendship. I mean, we're both obviously happily married. um, But when we go into the woods, we're sharing horsemanship with each other. We're sharing the experience of of having a peaceful day out on the trail. Beautiful, you know, state parks that are, are overwhelmingly beautiful. I mean, it's just an incredible area. But what she gave back to me, was that feeling of youth of discovery i had never been to a lot of the parks that we were riding in Um, matter of fact most of the ones with the endurance rides i didn't even know about so she's given me back this this youthful exuberance of going into the woods and seeing things that you've never seen before and you know what's around the next bend and the uh, horse i'm riding she uh she purchased from me whom i really liked so it's kind of neat that i'm able to actually continue riding them and participating in his life as well as you know participating in hers but it's it's an odd road that you travel you don't you don't always uh, do things for money sometimes you do things because it's the right thing to do and uh, yeah.
0: yeah
1: obviously you don't, you don't want to do that a lot <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I uh, I feel the same way. Like, you know, I wish uh I wish I could just do my sports psychology for free. Like I, I I hate that I have to charge people money to help them, but my job, my profession, uh I'm I'm lucky that I get to get paid for it, uh, because I love doing it. I love to me so I for my personal story, um I was I rode in eventing, um, and and I wasn't very successful. I had a lot of mental hurdles myself. Um, and that's kind of what drew me into sports psychology. Um, and I was also a, a professional groom for quite a, quite a while, uh, got to go to like big nations cups overseas and, and travel with the horses on airplanes and go to the five stars and everything like that. And, uh, you know, two years out of grooming at that level and, uh, I think it feels better to help someone that is afraid of their horse, uh, get back to that joy and like, oh my God, I just had a, a, I trotted a cross rail for the first time in six months and it felt amazing. And I had a great time. Like that's a better feeling to me than, oh, my horse placed in the top five at this five star. And there's a lot of work and I'm not downplaying one or the other, but, um, you know, those priorities. And I like that you're kind of talking about endurance with like discovery and novelty because, uh, you know, it's funny. I think one of the things I talk about a lot too is like burnout, right? And I think it's very prevalent in the equestrian industry, considering how hard and long that we work. Um, and a lot of times people's answer to burnout is, well, I'm just going to go take a day off and not do anything or watch TV uh, or, you know, read a book, chill out on the couch and, you know, time and place for that, obviously. But there's something so powerful about just saying, like, I'm going to go connect with horses and nature and and be out there and enjoying the trails, So it's. Sounds like Pam sort of served a purpose there for you as well, without putting words in your mouth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously it's my job to train horses that, you know, win big championships and and, been enormously successful in my career. And I'm very, very, you know, happy I had those opportunities. Endurance is an interesting sport. You're, you're not out there to win. You're out there to finish. It's a, it's a challenge to yourself as how well you can bond and team up with the horse to go do something that in, in my life, looking on from the outside looked impossible. How do you ride a horse 50 miles in 12 hours? You no, know, it's, it's incredible. I mean, even the Pony Express horses only went 10 miles at a time. So you're asking the horse to go 50 miles. Um, all of a sudden there's races that go hundred miles. and uh, I use the term race because there is a winner, usually an Arab or a Mustang. (laughs) We're using gator horses, so we're not not going into it to try to win. However, we've gotten top 10 on multiple occasions. You're going to finish, and this last ride that I just finished on Saturday was my first time I finished a 50-mile ride. And I can tell you it's so different from the 25-mile rides that I've been doing previously that I finally understand what the sport's about, is looking back for an impossible trek that you just completed, realizing that you've done something that, you know, most people will never experience, and, and it was fun. It was, it was eerily fantastic in the woods. I was by myself for, for almost eight hours. There was nobody around me, never passed anybody, never saw anybody. It was just me and my horse going through the woods you know sometimes walking most of the time gating and uh so it's a a sport that i can see experience that i've now had why pam was so drawn to get back to it as she fought through her years to have the experience again to do this and and having experienced it myself it makes me super proud that i took the time to, to help her it was a great life experience for me and she's making it better by actually showing me what it was she worked so hard to get back to. Very special friendship.
0: Yeah, very cool. Do you think that uh there's a hundred miler in your future? Do you uh do you plan to try to accomplish one of those?
1: So we did Oh. <laughs> <Well, laughs> yeah, something twice as hard as what I just achieved. That's kind of inconceivable at this point in time, but Yeah, we did the 25-milers until the horses actually found it kind of easy. Yep. And uh, we tend to ride about 25 miles every Thursday up at Big South Fork, Tennessee. Um, So 25-mile rides just became our normal weekly thing. So to go to an endurance ride and do them, you know, obviously got to the point that we were pretty confident and comfortable doing that. So we stepped up, you know, just recently to the 50. Um, I didn't finish my first two Efforts at 50 mile rides. Um, different problems came up. My horse got a stone in his wedged in his heel uh, on the second to last ride, so I had to pull up and, and stop because I didn't know what was causing the horse to have problems. And later discovered as I, you know, was grooming him. So you know, it teaches you through time a process of how to do it. So the answer would I do 100. Probably if the fifties ever become, you know, normal (laughs)
0: seems
1: (laughs) seems out of reach right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's hard to, to wrap your head around. Like, you know, I think, uh, as as eventers you know the the big five star tracks are five miles and obviously you're doing that at a gallop with uh big obstacles and stuff like that but uh endurance is a different ball game and it's definitely something that I've been interested in learning more about through through meeting Pam and reading the book as well um but I like that, you know, as you kind of said, it is a challenge against yourself, right? Like you're trying to finish, you're trying to just keep persevering and, you know, this isolation in the woods and going through. How do you guys navigate out there? Like, how do you know where you're going? Is there, is it all marked? Do you have to like pre-do the track ahead of time? Uh, Pam and I were were so uh, caught up in talking about uh, her experience that I never really got to ask her some like specific endurance questions. I know she might be the better person to ask, but um, I'm actually curious to hear it from you because you're coming into the sport without a lot of expertise.
1: Yeah. So the, uh, the, the trail is marked with, um, you know, a little colored tape hanging from branches typically. So there's one about every quarter mile. The, path that you're on usually doesn't have a lot of forks in it but if it does they mark the turn by putting three flags to one side of the trail letting you know that a turns coming up and then if so you see the turn you make the turn and then there's a confidence marker just after if it's a really confusing area they'll actually put up an arrow you know on a little stake make sure that you see the turn but the trails are really well marked that's actually not been a problem Okay. Um, except once where Pam and I had trouble finding a trail when we first started. But, but most most of the trails have been very well marked. Um, the You know, the book that we've been referring to is Pam's book, Three Steps Up to Mediocrity. The reason the book's called that is kind of interesting. One, it's three steps of the mounting block <laughs> that she had trouble getting on. <laughs> yep. but the, the mediocrity, you know, people would, kind of wonder why the book is titled using that word mediocrity and endurance to finish is to win it's actually their logo their their thing so you don't have to be best you just have to finish the finishing is an achievement that most people will never know and really I didn't understand that you know I think that's that's something that I think people will hopefully uh, experience in reading the book is that you your you're finishing is winning. you're fin- I've finished I finished the 50 that I just completed. I finished in the last few minutes. I took almost the entire time. I was last thrown a shoe had to go back to camp, get the horse's shoe put back on so it put me way behind. You know most people would have said you know that's probably good for the day and I probably would have except I didn't have anything better to do. so <laughs> I went out with my my buddy, Max, you know, my horse, and we enjoyed the woods, and it came, you know, close to the time that the race or the uh, contest was going to be over, and I realized I could actually finish on time, so we had a three-mile sprint to the finish line and made it. <laughs> so it's it's experiences like that that, you know, that have caused both of us to continue to pursue the sport. Um, obviously, it was her sport that she wanted to pursue and had to get back to you through Confidence building, but in my case, it's just something she uh, exposed me to, and I found as a hobby. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's very cool, and I and I love I love that message. I think um, it was a couple years ago, and there was a grain bag. I forget what company it was, but the motto on the grain bag was like, "There can only be one best." And I started to think about that, and I was like, "How toxic." is the idea that there can only be one best, right? Like you're at a horse show with all your friends, all your peers, like there's only one person that can think of themselves as successful that day. And that's where, you know, like when I work with clients and stuff like that, like my goal is not to be like, oh yeah, like let's get you winning everything. It's to view success as your own journey and your own path. And it might look different on any given day. And, and it's not to say that there's a time and a place where, where outcomes matter, right? Like don't matter, matter. Uh, Yeah. When you go to a horse show, you're, you're trying to win. There's certain aspects of the sport that kind of force you into that mindset, But again, I think it can be a really unhealthy place to be. And and if you think of like working back confidence, Pam in endurance, it's great of I am afraid right now and I just want to get back to doing this thing with the end goal of finishing versus I'm just you know, trying to get back and win the ribbons. And I I already feel the pressure on myself because I'm afraid. And now I've got the added pressure of a show and people judging me and and that sort of atmosphere. So it's almost an interesting paradigm to see her go through uh, with the goal of just enjoying and finishing.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great point you brought up. The weakness of horse shows is, is there's only one winner. And uh, no matter how good your horse is, there's always somebody out there that has a horse just a smidgen better than yours or has worked just a little bit harder than you. And, you know, you have to get real comfortable with the idea of not being the winner. Um, sometimes you're lucky. You get to be winner. Sometimes you have a horse that wins for years. But that's very rare. The only sports that I can think of where, where it takes you out of that mindset at least that I've experienced I'm sure there's others but dressage is a competition against yourself can you better your score from the last their last ride now of course there's winners in that sport and there's winners in endurance but the idea of endurance is to finish Because you look back and say I've ridden 50 miles your friends are like holy cow did I hurt your rear <laughs> you know yeah that's
0: <laughs> That's my other question. What what are the saddle rubs like after a fifty mile ride?
1: <laughs> so I can't speak to the people that are riding trotting horses. I'm sure that the insides of their knees are pretty raw. Riding a gated horse, um, you know, it's a pretty smooth ride. They can go fairly fast. They can they can gate at about seven to nine miles an hour. To finish a ride like that, you have to average, you know, a little little around six miles an hour. Okay. So you've got a horse that isn't putting a lot of concussive force into your body. Um, more of a shuffling feel to the, to the gate, which your body can relax into. So you don't have this up and down concussive force hitting you in the back, um, you know, or any, any other place, your knees. So when we're done, you might have body fatigue, but you're not, you know, you're you're not specifically sore in any one spot. And I think that's been kind of a neat thing do this with the gated horses because it's it's uh it's fun. I mean you're you're not you're not getting there and say, Wow, you know, I'm a mess <laughs> So you actually can look back on it with a, a pretty good pretty good view. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah those, uh, the only uh, the only gated horse uh, I've ever ridden is uh the Icelandic horses but that that tolt is very very comfortable to sit so I can uh, imagine mm-hmm. that that gait is nice to to be on for long periods of time
1: yeah it's you know it's kind of what they were bred for the uh Walker walkers related to the Narragansett pacer who's related to the pilpherry of ancient Europe about eight hundred a d it's a type of horse that's kind of come through history changing its name every time they change locations it's a it's a very old type of horse and if you go back and look at why it was used it's it can travel fairly long distances without making the rider saddle fatigued so it was great for plantations it was great for you know settling west matter of fact the horses in Tennessee were were so desired that people would hike over the Appalachians and then buy their horse in middle Tennessee and continue West with that smoother gated horse. It was a, you know, in the early 1800s, it was a very excellent commodity that, that uh, Tennessee had access to. So, you know, it's, it's a neat thing to experience a gated horse because it, it is smooth enough that you tend to notice your environment a lot more you're not focusing on staying in rhythm with the trot you're not you know i mean i don't i've I've trained arabs i've trained some other trotting breeds but it's just a different sort of relaxation that you can have in the saddle because you're not being impacted by the up and down motion
0: very cool very cool well scott thank you so much for like the conversation and, and your willingness to talk about Pam and the process. I think it's going to be fun for people to kind of hear both sides of the story. Um, I do have one question that I kind of always end my uh, guest podcast episodes with. Um, and that is uh, what book were big book fans on the podcast? I know Pam said you were a reader. So um if if there is one, uh, what book has changed your view of the world that you could recommend to our listeners? Kind of putting you on the spot here.
1: Are you referring to a horse training horse book?
0: Uh it can be any book. Like uh so for me, my my book is Man's Search for Meaning by by Victor Frankel. That's my book that's changed my view of the world. So uh it doesn't have to be just related to horses.
1: All right. Well, I've got two then.
0: <laughs> Perfect.
1: So there's a book that's written by Sylvia Locke, L-O-C-H. It's called Dressage and Lightness. Um, I was sick for a while with a lung infection. And so I had a, a couple of weeks that I had to recoup, and I ha- happened to read this book. And to me, it's, a, it's the best written training book that I've ever had access to, because everything in the book works when it's applied the way It's described in the book. So that's changed my training technique and actually got me into dressage. So that would be one. The other is a a book called Endurance by, um, or experienced by Ernest Shackleton's uh, quest to get to the South Pole, where his ship got frozen in ice and he spent two years on the ice floes trying to get back to uh, civilization. And what made it so interesting is that the whole entire crew survived. That the adventure, the real adventure of what happened in that two-year trek showed me something that I believe impacted the rest of my life, which was that we can do anything if we can set our mind to it and be determined enough to work toward it every single day. There really isn't anything that can stop us. And, you know, that's, that's true in the horse world. It's true really in your job anything else if you put full effort into it every day at some point in time you're gonna end up getting really good at it so it kind of uh set the tone to what I wanted to do as a professional horseman
0: I love that that's uh I've never heard of that uh either of those books the dressage one I'm interested but that second one is is right up my alley in terms of inspiration and uh things to draw off of. So uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and again, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your your busy schedule to have a nice little chat with me. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share or say before we sign off for today?
1: Um, well, you're welcome for the conversation. <laughs> the um, I think the thing that people need to realize when they're having trouble with a horse, you have to become a teammate with a horse, it's like having a dance partner. You have to open yourself up. Um, a lot of times when we're afraid, we constrict ourselves. We focus on the thing that's making us afraid. And I think that the most important thing that I can give is advice as advice if, is, if the fear is causing you to not be able to accomplish your goal. You have to first realize that with a horse, you have to open yourself up and uh, leave your humanity somewhere else. And uh, one of the examples I use is, is uh, come from work and you've had a rough day and you want to ride your horse. You basically, have to close your eyes and you have to think of filling your entire body up with water. Slowly feel the water trickle out of your heels, letting the level descend and descend and descend until it leaves nothing behind but emptiness. That's the state we have to ride a horse in. Because our humanity interferes with our ability to allow the horse to communicate with us by making ourselves empty, able to receive the uh, stimulus from the horse and the, the uh, body language of the horse, the feel of the horse, we're able to bond with that horse much, much deeper, and uh, end up experiencing some pretty incredible things with your with your new partner. But that that is the key, and I think you'll find the more empty that you can approach the horse with and more willing to experience that horse in his own environment that you'll buddy up a lot faster.
0: Yeah. I, I love that. I feel like that's something that uh, I've tried to articulate to people. um, And I don't think I've ever said it so eloquently, just, you know, being able to leave everything else from the day um, and and really approach your horse where it is and where you are. um, And, hearing feeling and, and understanding where that animal is coming from so um again yeah thank you so much uh i am so glad that i was able to randomly connect with uh pam and and then you via a post i made on facebook uh, i loved the book i loved hearing your side of the story um and uh maybe one of these days i'll make it out to uh tennessee and go for a ride with you guys <laughs>
1: Sounds good. We'll look forward to it.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Scott.
1: You're welcome, thank you.